you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for how you preserved your word through hundreds and hundreds of years and how you've ensured that we would have exactly what it was that you wanted to communicate to us. We thank you, Father, that your word transcends culture and time and that no matter what century or decade anyone reads your word, they will see the truth, they will hear the truth, the truth will be revealed to them through your word, you will speak to them through your word regardless of the situation, circumstances they find themselves in, regardless of their birth, regardless of their financial position, regardless of their status and whatever government they're involved in, you speak to them. And so, Father, as your people, we ask that you would continue to communicate to us through your word. And Father, you would help us to understand what is being written. That again, our, our, our thoughts may be shaped to be like your thoughts. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul continues to write to the Corinthians, again, in light of this difficulty that they are going through where there's these group of individuals who have kind of wormed their way in the church, are trying to find ways to establish themselves as leaders in the church. Their desire is to diminish who Paul is, almost to try to eliminate him, to ruin his reputation, to call into question his spiritual status and his calling for the Lord so they can exalt themselves. And Paul says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge, indeed. In every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. As I've mentioned many times throughout our discussion of 2 Corinthians, Paul has, I think, clearly established that as he defends himself, he does so really in a very unique way. Uh, he is pointing out clearly all of the difficulties with these interlopers, with these intruders. As he seeks to defend himself, even though he speaks honestly about his accomplishments, his gifting, and his calling. He doesn't do so in a way that he exalts himself. He doesn't do it in a way that exalts him over against these individuals. His concern really is for them. And as you look once again, he says um, in verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as, pu as a pure virgin to Christ. And so that's what his concern is, is that these individuals are going to be devoted to Christ. He wants them to have this pure devotion, not to him, but to Christ. Now, 
in this difficulty that's going on here, this is much more than just a, a squabble of personalities in a church. Because we can, you know, you can kind of read through this and you might jump to that conclusion. Others, I think, have thought that, that, you know, they're not sure why all this was saved for us today because of this little difficulty that's going on. But they were in peril. Their faith was in jeopardy. And the tragedy, basically, I read this by a pastor, I thought it was a pretty cool statement. The tragedy of Eden was ominously close to reenactment. So he is recognizing that these false teachers, which is really what they are. In fact, if you, if you kind of go through a study of 1 John, you'll find out that what constitutes a false teacher is not just teaching falsely the doctrine of Scripture. You, you can be classified a false teacher and teach correctly. But if you have motives to try to gain a following for yourself, if you have a motive to try to, to gain from others you know, their wealth or authority over them for whatever your reasons, you are a false teacher in that sense as well. And so the influence of these false teachers, or as he calls them, super apostles, is to the point that it has so affected them spiritually that they are in danger of making decisions that's going to cause them to decide in ways that will lead them away from Christ and away from obedience to the Word of God. That's going to begin to diminish or erode their faith to where they're going to be in great danger. This peril that he's talking about, I guess you could kind of compare it to that of, an un, of the unfaithfulness of a, of a fiancé. Remember that in our culture, if a couple is engaged to get married and one of them ends up fooling around with another individual, the wedding is called off. Well, in the world that Paul lived in, in the Jewish community, when one was betrothed to an individual, that was, in a sense, already looked upon in a way of being married. Though the marriage had not yet been consummated, if one of them was found to be unfaithful, the only way you would break off that engagement was by divorcing that individual. It was a big deal. That kind of betrayal was very personal uh, and viewed as being uh, very impactful on the relationship. It would destroy the relationship. And that aspect of it would be the same today. Whenever there is adultery that's committed in a relationship, it greatly damages, if not destroys, the relationship that's there. There is really no other betrayal that is as deep and as personal uh, and as destructive as that. And we, need, and we need to kind of keep that in our mind as Paul writes. So the engaged woman, in a sense, owes her love and allegiance to one person. That's the one that she's betrothed to. So if she shares herself with any other man, she is guilty of unfaithfulness. In verse 3, if you look at it, he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The word sincere there in the English Standard Version in the New American Standard, in the New King James, it uses the word simplicity. In our vocabulary, sincerity would be a word that we would much more readily recognize the meaning of the word that Paul uses. But the word means a singleness of devotion. A divided heart leads to a defiled life and a destroyed relationship. So remember that what Paul is concerned about is not their singleness of loyalty to him, though that is clearly the point of tension. But his concern is that these individuals are having such an effect on them that their single-minded devotion to Christ is in jeopardy. 
We, we understand this as believers today, hopefully. We sometimes will talk about maybe the failure of some well-known Christian leaders. And, there are, and that, that can have a devastating effect on, on Christians, especially those who may have been more enamored with or find themselves kind of following that individual for whatever the reason, in a sense, more so than Christ. You can do so without really being aware of it, in the sense that you, you're, you're, you're following Christ, you love Christ, but this individual, they're the one. Whatever they say, you hang on every word, and, and it's almost as if their interpretation of Scripture is the only correct interpretation of Scripture, and whatever they say it means, that's what you kind of follow. I remember one time going to a, a Ligonier conference in, in R.C. Sproul, that was kind of his group, and, and he was doing a conference, and throughout the conference, through different kinds of discussions, it became clear, and I, I had never really thought about this before, uh, but there was a group of anywhere from two to 300 people that wherever he did a conference, they were there. If he did 10 a year, they were there. They were devoted to him. I'm not sure if they were members of a church or not. I, he was a little concerned about that. Uh, and, and it was chiding them on being faithful in church, but he, he wasn't coming on too strong because normally those individuals support your ministry pretty heavily. Uh, so that can be kind of a, you know, maybe a little bit of a, a conflict of interest there. You don't want to scold them too much because you don't want them to close their checkbook. But the idea was, it was I just really never thought that there were individuals who, who do that. And I guess it's not really all that uncommon. Not maybe, I, may, I don't know how it is outside of the Christian circuit, uh, but there are some, thank goodness they're good teachers, even though there are some that are all clearly false teachers, but there are individuals that maybe through the charisma, personality, whatever it is, individuals are so devoted to them that it is really to the point that they're more devoted to them than the Christ. And that can be, that can be a problem. So even though we may become extremely disappointed when a uh, someone that we may really admire and we've learned a great deal from when they fall uh, into sin and it does disturb us, maybe even affect us, hopefully it would affect us in the sense that we maybe re-examine ourselves to make sure that our walk with the Lord is what it's supposed to be, uh, it should not be devastating to us as believers because we follow Christ. It's Christ who never fails. Christ who will never betray us in any way, shape, or form. We know that men sin. Sometimes it can be so hard to, to understand how in the world, we think this, how in the world can someone who knows so much about Scripture and explain Scripture so well and apply it in so many magnificent ways, how, how can that happen to them? That just reveals to us the weakness of the flesh, the strength of sin, and that we need to keep our guard up at all times because none of us are past being vulnerable to the various types of sins. And so here Paul is very concerned about them. His focus is on their mind. We know that Satan is a liar. He tries to get us to listen to his lies, to ponder them and to believe them. That's what he did in the beginning with Eve. You may have heard this before, but when you read through the, uh, the temptation of, of Adam and Eve through Satan, uh, there's three things that Satan does. Number one, he questioned God's word when he asked the question, did God actually say? It's a very impactful question. <laughs> Immediately, an individual is, is like, like maybe uh, when you remember when you were younger and you didn't want to get in trouble from mom and dad, and uh, you know, so you, you tell your friends whatever you're doing that it's time that you need to go home or you can't do that, 
And maybe they'll just say, did your parents really tell you you can't do that? You're going to be like, what's behind that question? They don't, really, they don't really care if your parents actually said the words or not. They're trying to, find, trying to worm the way to get you to begin to doubt whatever your parents may have said and, and maybe kind of throw your lot in with them, so to speak. Secondly, he didn't deny God's word. He, he, told, them, he told Eve straight out, He's, you know, because she talked about the fact that they ate the fruit, um, that they would die. He says, you won't die. You really think you're going to die? I mean, think about it. You're going to die if you, if you eat that fruit. It's just, it's just to initiate doubt in the mind of that individual. And oftentimes, when it comes to even temptation that we have to face, it's like, you know, we're, we're afraid to get in trouble. You know, then it's after a while, like, well, how much real trouble can I get into? Can I, maybe I can handle the trouble <laughs> that I want to get into. Maybe it's, maybe it's worthwhile. And then, of course, he substituted his own lie by saying, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. And so the substitution of the lie that is there, you won't get in that much trouble. It's not really against the law or whatever the case may happen to be. And so because of this tactic that's used, this methodology that's used by Satan, it is also at times often used by false teachers. Satan is crafty. He knows that believers will not immediately accept a lie, so the enemy has to kind of bait the hook. And he makes it easy for us to accept what he has to offer. Satan is an imitator. He copies what God does and tries to convince us that his offer is better than God's. How does he do this? Well, the main ways is by using counterfeit ministers, those who pretend to serve God, but who are really the servants of Satan. Remember, when we say that someone is a servant of Satan, it doesn't mean that they have a secret room somewhere where they bow and they pray to Satan. That's not what that means. The bottom line is, is they are working against whatever God's purposes are. So they're on the team of Satan, so to speak. And whatever it is that their angle is, whatever they're looking for, you, you know, Satan's team is, is pretty accepting. It's a pretty big team. They'll take anybody. Uh, as long as you're anti-God, it doesn't matter what the details are. And that's, that's the idea that's here. And so due to the seriousness of what's going on, that's why Paul says in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Which basically he could have said it this way. Y'all have been putting up with foolishness all, with all of these guys, so it shouldn't be too difficult for you to continue to put up with foolishness, even though some of it's mine. So they've been already putting up with foolishness, so he's, he's kind of, in a sense, catering to them. He's being sarcastic, I think maybe a little. But again, Paul is doing all of this. Why? Because he's jealous. He's jealous for them. What does he mean by that? Well, most of the time, human jealousy seeks to diminish or to consume its object. It's motivated by resentment and self-interest. But there is a divine jealousy. Divine jealousy is a virtue. It is a form, as one commentator said, of holy courage mingled with love. You see, what's going on here is the objects of the jealousy, which is the Corinthian believers, they owe their love and intelligence to God. They have pledged to God faithful devotion and obedience. And they receive their health, their strength, their possessions, and reason from God's gracious hand. And then, because of how they're acting now, they proudly strut their self-proclaimed independence right in front of his face. They have, a, they have, in a sense, sold themselves to false lords or masters who take everything from them and give them nothing. Paul is upset by all of this. He is deeply concerned for their spiritual well-being. He is outraged by their fickleness. He fears for their future. 
if they do not repent and return to the Lord. That is the feeling that Paul is experiencing. That's what's behind his statement when he says, for I betrothed you to one husband. Again, the emphasis there is not that they're loyal to him. Paul really doesn't care about that. He, he does care in the sense that being loyal to, to, to him should be loyalty to what he teaches. And what he teaches is straight from God. He is teaching them the word of God. He wants them to be loyal to Christ and not to these individuals. And he can see what it is doing to these, to these individuals. So Paul explains how all this has happened. How did this, how did this deceit take place? I mean, you have a church that was founded and, the, and many of the individuals were discipled by the apostle Paul. How does a church like that end up in this kind of a situation? Is it just because Paul wasn't there? Well, Paul says in verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the key word there is cunning. Cunning is a word that means that someone is shrewd or crafty. It signifies the employment of any and all means to realize an end. Now, it can be a word to describe something good, um, it is sometimes used in a positive way as well as in a negative way um, in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the word that's used for cunning is only used in the negative. And what is interesting is in Kittle's Theological Dictionary, um, he begins to get into how the word developed. They get into all these different nuances of, of what can be expressed or what is kind of behind the meaning of a word. And when it comes to this kind of shrewdness or this kind of cunning, there's two things that are kind of included. Number one, it's called the art of misrepresentation. So I think they, they say it that way, not just because you just misrepresent what someone says. You do it in a very artful way so that it's not as obvious. It sounds really good. And then along with that, this enticement, they are catering to a sense of self-seeking. Whatever it is that you are wanting, Whatever it is, you know, whether you want position, power, maybe healing, finances, whatever it happens to be, um, a, a, maybe a sense of prestige. Whatever that's going on there, there's an, when, you're, when someone is cunning, they're trying to draw on, on that self-interest that you have. And they're trying to get that to lure you in. That's the idea. That, that's why so many individuals are kind of successful in conning people out of their money. Because most, many people have a desire for more money. And maybe, maybe they have a desire for easy money. And so the guy comes around you and says, hey, man, I know the bank can give you 3%, but I know a place where you can get 25%. And I just can't share this with anybody else. Of course, you can say, why? <laughs> I want all my friends to hear. But anyway, the idea is to lure you in. And so what they're trying to do is they're going to misrepresent the truth in a very artful way. So the guy doesn't say, oh, yeah, invest with me and I'll double your money in one day. You know, that, that's, okay, no one does that. All right? But then the idea along with that is they want to appeal to that self-interest. And so that, there's this cunning that's used. In, now, remember that when individuals are cunning, that doesn't always mean that they have sat in their house and tried to figure out how to be cunning to you. Now, I, I do think there are some who do that. And it can be, in a sense, an art that's perfected. But remember, as human beings, our brains work magnificently fast. And there are individuals where that kind of uh, approach seems to come fairly natural. Remember that lying comes natural. Being deceitful becomes, becomes very natural. 
Man, I don't remember if you remember the very first time you lied, but it was pretty easy. You know, you were a young kid, and you just lied. Probably did so without even thinking about it. You know, and, and through the years, we learned to lie better. You know, it, it be, we can make it sound much more believable. Uh, we know, we, we begin to control our bodily functions. You know, we don't act all nervous and whatever it happens to be. And so the idea here is that, that cunning is used here and, and it's, it's a natural thing that can take place. And so the individual's not thinking, oh, he's using cunning on me. Because you can't always, most times, you don't always see it coming. So the Corinthians, they don't recognize their own danger. They don't recognize the danger that they are in because the enemy um, of their spiritual warfare has used cunning. Christians are open to this kind of cunning deceit because it combines the language of faith and religion with the content of self-interest and flattery. And I've heard individuals talk in this way. Remember one time I was, I was scolded by a guy. He was on the phone. I won't give you the whole context of the conversation. But he had seen, these are, this has happened so many, many, many years before I got here. And uh, he said that I would be much more effective if I would be much more complimentary to the congregation. And I said, I, what do you mean? He says, well, when you get up, you just start abruptly and say, open your Bibles. I said, yeah, I do say that. He goes, oh, you need to spend some time and, you know, tell them how great they are and how great the service is going and how marvelous the choir sounds, even through all this stuff. And I said, you know, I said, this church I'm at, they've been through a lot of that. They've had some guys who can really, I mean, they can flatter them like nobody else. And this led to them being deceived. So I'm just not into all that. I said, we all know the choir did good. The choir's not singing so I can praise them. That's not what's going on. And I'm certainly not there to tell the congregation how great they are. Right? I'm not there to tell them that they stink either. But we're just, we just need to get into the truth of the word of God. And uh, he just didn't understand that. And he said, I really needed to work on that. I refused. But anyway, there's this idea within Christianity that if you mix in religious language, and if you look at the, what we you know, we often talk about the health and wealth guys and all that. If you really want to, listen to them. Listen carefully. To the, to the Christian language they use to give a message that appeals to the absolute greed of the human heart. And they, can make, they make it sound like it comes straight out of the word of God. That this is God's will for your life. And, and, and if you're not listening with the ears of scripture and scrutiny, you, you can't tell. People say, well, all I know is it came from the Bible. That's what you hear. People have said that to me. Well, I don't know how you can say Solomon's was a false teacher. He uses the Bible. I said, Farrakhan uses the Bible. We don't believe what he says. Satan quoted scripture. What do you mean they use the Bible? What does the Bible say? What does it mean? And individuals say, well, all I know is they love Jesus. And they say, well, because the Bible says that no one can call Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And when they came up, they said Jesus was Lord. I said, okay. And so we are susceptible to that in so many ways. And so Paul's concerned uh, for these individuals because they are in this position now because they have really allowed themselves to be deceived by these individuals. We do like to be told how special we are. Now there's, there is a sense in where we can use the word special and it's not sinful. Right? So like when I'm talking to my grandchildren 
and I tell them that they're special. You know what I mean by that is they're special to me. I'm not saying to them that on this planet, you are the most special individual who exists. And that's not what I'm communicating to them. So it's not wrong in that sense to use the word special. But at the same time, we like to hear that we're special in a way that kind of builds our ego. In whatever way it is. Whatever way, whatever we're hungry for. And we're like being told that, you know, as we mentioned before in some of the false teaching that we went through, that, you know, we have authority over Satan and you can claim this and you can tell him that and all these types of things. And, so, and we like hearing that in general. So we like to be told how special we are. We like to be told how blessed we are and how many more blessings we can get. We like to have our Christianity shaped less uh, by the cross than by um, the uh, triumphalism or rules or charismatic leaders or subjective experience. That's what we want to use to shape our Christianity. If this shaping can be quoted with assurance of orthodoxy, we may not detect that we are being weaned from sincere and pure devotion to Christ and towards a different gospel. Remember again, he says in verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. When he says another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, he is letting them know that this has already happened to them. The, the differences of what's being taught sometimes are, is, it's subtle. You, you can't always immediately recognize it. They're able to slip it in, but it alters it drastically. If you ever talk to individuals who attend a Catholic church regularly and you talk to them about the difference between what Catholics believe about salvation and what we believe, the individual may say, but we believe the gospel too. And if you say to them, well, it's a different gospel, they go, no, it's not. It's about Jesus. It is about Jesus. But when you study what they teach, what they've done is they've combined the grace of God with your works. And that then leads to your salvation. And that's why we emphasize that it is faith in Christ plus nothing. There are no, there's nothing that you do to contribute to your salvation. So that is a different gospel. But they can be very successful because many individuals are unaware of that. They just are listening in a sense in general. And so they're being taken away by a different gospel. Turn if you would to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Paul brings this up again because these individuals have been greatly influenced by the Gnostics. And so in Galatians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 6. It reads this way. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You know what's interesting? There are several charismatic false teachers who claim in their experiences that they've been given some messages by an angel. And apparently that means that it's authoritative. Joseph Smith, who is founder of the Mormon faith, was visited by the angel Gabriel. And yet Paul says that even if an angel should come, if it's preaching a different gospel, 
They are to be accursed. The idea is, is that, that when you read through Scripture, in fact, when Paul gives warnings about uh, wolves and sheep's clothing and the warning of the church, he doesn't say, you know, one day they're going to come. They're already there. There's an urgency to his, to his exhortation to them because the false teachers are already there. And they're going to come in appearing to be sheep. And so we need to be individuals who are thinking through what the Scripture says. And we, and we need to be exact in the way we say, especially certain things. We want to make sure that we're not misrepresenting or misstating what the scripture says. Because that's what Satan does, is he is into the whole word game. And so that's why we want to analyze what we teach and what we say. And we sometimes call each other out, not necessarily to scold each other, but the idea is, is you know, someone may say, Brother, I'm not sure you said that the best way. I, I, I think that maybe the way you said it, many people can, have misunderstood it. And, and sometimes we need to correct it to make sure that we've got it right. Because we don't want to misrepresent what the Bible says. We want to make sure that we are, we are holding on to what the scriptures actually teach. And so that, it's important for us to do that kind of thing. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Again, a couple of things just to note, and, and there's a lot of things that we've already mentioned, but again, there are those who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then, of course, he talks about those who are teaching something that is, that is a gospel that is contrary to what they had heard. And so that's why it's so important that we pay attention to the words that people say. Why we don't immediately just latch on and call someone a good teacher or a good preacher just because it sounds like they use a lot of the word of God or they talk a lot about the gospel. We do want to analyze that. The goal is to be discerning. The goal is to be critical. Critical not in, in necessarily being negative, but critical in listening to how they've said certain things. And not just once and not just twice, but many times listening to it. That's why, so, so when we talk about, you know, individuals like T.D. Jakes, many, many, many individuals think that he believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ because of how he talks. All I know is, is that he does not believe that in the Trinity. That's kind of a major thing. Amen. And so because he does not, then it, everything else comes into question. He would then be a heretic. That's a false, that's false teaching. You know, you are denying the person of Christ and the person of the, the God of the Godhead, each person, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He believes that God is one and they each kind of appear in a different mode at the moment. It's called modalism. And so that is incorrect. It's wrong. One time Benny Hinn, which he's easy to pick on because he's wrong with so many things, but one time he was just kind of up there talking and he claims that many times he's given direct messages by the Holy Spirit. And he said that when it comes to the Trinity, it's not just a Trinity. He says within the Trinity, there's a Trinity within each one. There's a Trinity in the Father, a Trinity in the Son, and a Trinity in the Holy Spirit. And then he said, so there's nine of them. You know, I went back and looked at that message. I couldn't find any scripture references to there's nine of them. Because it's not true. But again, the amazing thing, as it is with in many of these occasions, you have a large auditorium or church, five, 10, maybe 15,000 people shouting amen, nodding their head in agreement. You see, even those who may have been true believers that were there, they're in danger. That pure devotion to Christ is, is being diminished by these individuals. As soon as our acceptability before God depends on something more than his sacrifice on the cross. We have denied the sufficiency of his person and his work. 
And all the cults and all the other religions all add works in one way or another to salvation. Every single one of them. There is not this absolute dependence on Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. That's why we emphasize to people that even if you've been coming to this church or another church for your entire life and you've been faithful, that does not get you into heaven. Even if you spend $150 to buy yourself a Bible, and even if you read from that Bible on a regular basis, that spiritual discipline, though it's very good, is not going to get you into heaven. If you give most of your money away, and you, and you are self-sacrificing in so many ways to other people, and you do a lot of things that are really very good, you, you're not going to earn points towards your salvation. It is an impossibility. And even if you feel saved, whatever that means, that doesn't mean that you belong to Christ. We know we belong to Christ because we've placed our faith, our trust in who he is and in what he said and what he's done. And I am believing what God has done. I'm believing in what God has said. When I ask Christ to forgive me, I believe he will, not because I've passed some test. All my... All my trust is in him. So if my sins are forgiven, I'm up a creek. Because all of my marbles are in one basket. There is no other basket. And so that's what Paul is concerned about with these individuals. And we can be led astray from the gospel even after we've become Christians. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation if you're truly saved. That's not what you're in danger of. But you are in danger of living a life that where your joy is gone and the, uh, being able to experience the greatness of God and answer to prayer and all these things that go into the living, they're gone. Having peace of mind, be, being at peace with others, having, a, having the wisdom that comes from Scripture, all of that is non-existent in your life. At the point that Jesus is being, at, at, at that point, when we add something else to the gospel, to the death of Christ, Jesus is no longer being preached. He's no longer the biblical Jesus. He is an unreal product of the human imagination. He becomes relatively a powerless figure who cannot effectively save his people from their sins unless they supplement his work with something of their own merit. And even when it comes to our acceptance today by God as believers, I know that not only was I accepted by God because of his grace when I first came to Christ, my continued acceptance by God is based on Christ and what he's done. It's not based on my performance. I don't ever tell, imagine me telling someone, they go, why did you become a preacher? I just want to make sure I stayed saved. Is that what you have to do? Well, I can think of nothing better. Imagine how that person's going to feel. Like, wow, I didn't do that. What hope is there for me? Good luck. That's not what we teach. It's not what we believe. It's not what the Bible gives us. And so I know for a fact that I'm accepted because of Christ, not because of my parents, not because of their faith. Just so you know, if kids, if your parents are believers and Christians, that's awesome. That's so great. It's a blessing from God. But no matter how strong their faith is, their faith cannot get you into heaven. You have to believe in Christ. And it's amazing how many times a young adult somehow thinks that they're in because their parents are in. It's not just, what, it's not just something little kids think of, or maybe just kind of assume. We can grow up that way. 
So that's why Paul is coming down so hard on these believers, really in a very kind way, and challenging them to do something about these false teachers. They cannot put up with this any longer. They've got to deal with these guys, and they've got to get them out. And that's why Paul said, if you don't, when I'm coming, I'm dealing with it. And it wasn't because he was trying to be the big bad Paul. It's because he loves them dearly. And he was going to remove the threat from his family. And so we have, that's what we need to do. As fathers, you have a responsibility to your family to ensure that they are sitting under the correct teaching of the Word of God. You are to protect them from false teaching and false teachers. You have that responsibility. And mothers, even if your husband isn't, you have the responsibility as well. It's a double filter when it comes to what comes down to your kids. And you need to make sure that even though we might even be deeply appreciative of those who diligently teach the Word of God, nothing wrong with that. We need to make sure that they understand that we follow Christ and Christ alone. And everything we get is from the Scripture, from the Word of God. And we want to make sure we double-check what everyone teaches, even those that we trust. In fact, you should even, you want to teach your children that they need to double-check what you teach them in the Word of God. There's no shame in that. In fact, you should be proud of your children if they ever question what you say because they've been reading the verse, though they may have misunderstood it. You should praise them for thinking on their own and say, now let's look at this again and let me help you with this. What a great testimony to our children because the danger is real. We do not want to see Eden reenacted in our homes or in our church. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, and love. We thank you, Father, for the strength, the boldness, and the truth of Paul and what he said. We thank you, Father, for the challenge that he gives to these believers, to this church. And Father, we ask you to help us to take these things to heart. We pray, Lord, you would help us to be those who think that we think biblically, that we think logically through the scripture and from the scripture. Father, we may continue to believe that which is true, that we may jettison those things that are untrue. We pray, Lord, you help us to remain loyal to Christ and to Christ alone. And to follow us not, Lord, that we follow other leaders, but that we would join them as we follow Christ, because it is all about him. And Father, as always, we do pray for those who may not know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would convict them of their need of Jesus and to recognize that there is a gulf that is between you and them that cannot be bridged by anything other than the cross itself. They would believe in Jesus Christ and accept the marvelous, incredible, unearned gift of salvation. Bless us, Father, with your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.